you definitely want to make sure that you're, you're, you're structuring the deal in a way where the investor gets the tax benefits. There's cash flows. You want to make sure they get them first. And if there's a refinance or a sale, obviously they get their money back first and, you know, you distribute profits after. But, uh, you know, my favorite thing to do is like, for example, one of the last projects we acquired, if we're able to stabilize this thing, we paid under 4 million for it. And if we can get a, uh, valuation once it's stabilized closer to 10, 11 million. Once we refinance, we should be able to get a full return of capital to investors and still own the asset. And that's, that's typically my favorite way to do things. You are listening to the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show, the podcast dedicated to empowering you to invest for your family's future. Listen in to learn about different strategies successful investors use to live their best lives. Whether you are starting out on your real estate wealth building journey or a seasoned investor looking for the next unfair advantage, this is the show for you. Each conversation will help you be more savvy when it comes to understanding how to leverage real estate to achieve your goals and live an extraordinary life. Your host is none other than seasoned investors and power couple, Jose and Khadija Jafferji founders of the Savvy Real Estate Group, where we have been helping passive investors grow their wealth and getting them one step closer to financial freedom since 2008. Hey, Marcin, thank you so much for being on our show. And to start off, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into real estate. Sure, sure. Uh, Jose, Khadija, thank you for having me, obviously. Uh, really you and I have been talking about this stuff quite a bit, so it's just a natural progression for us to to kind of keep talking about this. Yeah, I, so I started out in real estate 15 plus years ago. You keep saying 15 years, but the longer I say 15 years, the <laughs> you know you you keep forgetting a few years along the way. But uh, like so many people, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad when I was in high school. You know, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I was you know going to make mom and dad proud, do the university thing, and and all this stuff. And, you know, it just, I, I read the books and I'm like, you know what? I can do this. Like, this is, this is something that I can do. I can make it work. Now, you know, in the book, they had $30,000 houses that they were talking about. Even, even 20 years ago in Canada, we didn't have $30,000 houses, but even at a hundred or $200,000, it, it made sense. So long story short, I, uh, I tried to get into real estate in my teens. Nobody would talk to me because, you know, you're just a snotty nose teenager. So uh, what I did is I ended up volunteering at a real estate brokerage to carry their four sales signs for free. Literally, that was how I got into real estate. They, the, 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 the broker record at the time wanted nothing to do with me. He's just like, kid, how are you going to add value? I'm like, tell me what your guys don't want to do. Well, they don't want to pick up four sales signs. I said, great, I'll pick them up. Nope. And they weren't the nice, cute little ones that they are today. They're the big, rusty, the big, you know, shingle, like the massive signs. So I had this beat up old Volkswagen Golf, and I remember I'm driving all over it was Mississauga at the time, uh, and I'm picking up these dusty old for sale signs, I'm dropping them off, I'm cleaning them off, and I'm doing it all with a smile. And it actually cost me money to do this because I'm paying for my own gas, own insurance, like I'm not working somewhere else. So, but but the cool thing is, is every time I dropped off these for sale signs, I ran into a mortgage broker, I ran into a realtor that was in that office because it was a buzzing office. They had 50 agents or so. So I got to talk to a few people and kind of just pick their brains, little pieces here and there. Like you would hear words like 
amortization and you're just, you know, 18 years old, you're like, what the heck? And Google wasn't what it was today where you could do all these online courses. So you're just, I'm writing words down and then I'm referencing them and, and everything else. Anyways, fast forward uh, about two years after that, got one of the realtors to work with me and sell me a house. And I bought a rental property. I think I was 20 or 21 at the time. I was still in school. And um, it was funny. So the bank calls, didn't have a cell phone. So the bank calls my house to let me know that I'm approved for the mortgage. And they leave a message. And, and you know, when you owe the bank money, they call you Mr. Right. Or Mrs. <laughs> so the bank, the, the bank, whatever bank it was, they're like, yeah, this message is for, you know, Mr. Mr. Droz. Want to let you know that your mortgage is approved. So I'm not home. My mom gets this voicemail and I get home that day from school or whatever. She goes, hey, the bank called. She said that you're approved for a mortgage or something. I'm like, oh, okay. I just, I walked by, I, I ignored the conversation. She's like, what mortgage? I'm like, well, I, you know, I, I bought a house. She goes, no, son, you rented a house. You rent a house. I go, no, no, no. I'm pretty sure I bought this one. <laughs> she, she goes, okay, called. And she freaks out, right? Because she's no concept of like rent. And I'm trying to explain like, cash flow to her rental properties and she just loses it like eastern european woman just loses it she's looking for the broom to set me straight right and i'm just like <laughs> i'm like no 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 it's going to rent itself and anyway she, she's like look tell the bank you made a mistake tell them you're giving the house back you know you, you, you this isn't your house give it back you made a mistake so anyway fast forward bought a house, bought a rental property uh learned you know, how to manage the property, you learn about cash flow, you learn about negative cash flow, bought a few more properties. And um, fast forward, I was recruited by a private equity firm in my early 20s. And that's when things really took off because I went from looking at houses and duplexes to now getting thrust into 100, 200, 300 unit acquisitions, developments, land assemblies, all these different types of transactions that you, you read about or you hear about, but you know, I'm in the eye of the storm and I'm in my early 20s. So it was, uh, it was, it was a heck of an experience to have. And, you know, since then I've, you know, how do you go back after that? Right. You, you know, you operate at that level, you see those types of transactions, you know, buying a duplex after that just didn't seem like the, the logical next step. So. And, and how, I'm curious to know how, how long were you at this, uh, private equity firm and, and was it just real estate based or, uh, oh, yeah. doing other it was, things as well? Yeah, it was a family-owned PE firm. They sourced uh, about nine figures a year in equity commitments. I was there for two years. I should have probably stayed longer, but you know, early twenties, you know, you know how it is, right? You think you know everything in your early twenties. So I spent two years there. I'm like, yeah, I got this figured out, and then I went out on my own. In hindsight, I probably should have stayed a little bit longer, but regardless, that two-year period that I was there, it just it just gave me a, such a different context around how things worked. That the next thing I started doing is structuring limited partnerships, you know, buying deals, partnering with operators, and you know, fifteen-ish years later, here we are. Interesting story for sure. So I'm assuming you didn't you didn't finish school at that point. You just thrust yourself right into the real estate <laughs> world. My mom is still hoping I finished school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you know, you started young and started early and uh, got your got got right into it and with all that experience. So yeah, that's great. So uh, fast forward now, what, 15-ish years, Marson's actually sitting in sunny Florida right now talking to us, right? While it's, uh, you know, minus, I don't know what outside over here. So bring us back to the present. What are you up to right now? Yeah. So when I, when I got introduced into PE, we were raising capital for uh, apartments, class A, B, and some workforce housing. And for me, the apartment sector always just made so much sense. It was 
it was it felt it felt like something I could get behind because you know everyone's always going to need a place to live and e- even today with the you know online and the metaverse and people talking about digital real estate my whole thing is that's cool you can go live in the metaverse but at some point you're going to have to take the goggles off and come back here <laughs> and actually sleep in the real world too right so for me apartments were always just a natural, natural story for people and it was a really simple kind of uh, transactional conversation um, so, so you know, last couple of years, uh, we've been uh, buying all throughout the Southeast in the U.S. Uh, now we're really uh, focused on, I really love Florida. Uh, for, you know, pre-COVID, I, I always loved Florida. Post-COVID with how migratory patterns have happened, you know, regardless of people's political leanings, Florida is a very open state. They're open for business. They have uh, no state taxes, uh, affordability is through the roof compared to a lot of other places, uh, especially in Canada. And, you know, you've got, um, you've got sun pretty much year round, right? So. And, and I'm, I wanted to know what made you decide to go to the U S versus, you know, besides the, the sun, which is, which can be beat. What made you go to the U S versus, you know, maybe other parts of Canada to find multifamily opportunities? So when COVID first started, my partners and I bought about 300 doors in Tennessee, and we bought those 300 doors for less, I think, than $10 million. Uh, And to put that into context, it's less than $30,000 a door. In Canada, I don't know if you can renovate a kitchen for 30 grand anymore. So, you know, there's the the price difference. Now, post-COVID, uh, two years into it, as we're as we're talking here, those prices have moved quite a bit. But even practically speaking, I mean, we were just bidding on a hundred uh, about one hundred and fifty unit portfolio here in uh, northern Florida, and uh, I'm probably going to be outbid on it. But it looks like it's going to sell for about twenty three, twenty four million dollars compared to Canada. So if you compare that to a major city in Canada, you're looking at probably double that, if not more. So the the you know, and the rents aren't that much higher in Canada compared to here. They're, they're higher, but not double to justify those types of valuations. So, you know, you're, you're able to get, uh, in, in my opinion, you're able to get a lot more uh, bang for your buck down. Yeah. And Marcin, uh, how would you describe the opportunities? Um, you know, we're, we're kind of in the multifamily space in Ontario as well. And uh, finding deals seems to be a big roadblock for a lot of investors. How is it different in the U.S.? Are there more opportunities? Well, you know, we were just talking about this earlier. I mean, the U.S. is 340, 350 million people. Canada is maybe one-tenth of that, you know, one-eleventh of that. So just by the sheer volume of the amount of human beings, I mean, Florida, as an example, just the state of Florida, there's 15 international airports, 15, just in this state alone. There's probably 15 in Canada. In the whole country. So when you when you when you understand the sheer volume and magnitude of, of business and transactions, I mean, I think I was reading if Florida was a country, it would have like the 15th largest or 17th largest GDP in the world, which is just, you know, which is insane. And I mean, obviously there's other states like Texas and California that are massive as well, but we just we don't have these dense, we don't have this type of density throughout Canada. I mean, I love Canada, I love living in Canada proud to be a Canadian and all this stuff, but it's really difficult to get excited to buy an apartment building where you're looking at $400,000 per door compared to less than half of that down here. Yeah, absolutely. The The numbers are getting more and more compressed out here, right? So, And, and not to mention that, you know, 
for example, Ontario, we have uh, rent control. We have, uh, you know, uh, we have so many restrictions uh, and it's more tenant friendly rather than landlord friendly, which, uh, you know, Florida, Texas, and uh, a lot of the Southeast are a lot more business friendly. So I'm sure that was one of the big reasons as well. Well, and, and what that does for you, I'm glad you brought that up. By having, see, intuitively people think that by creating rent controls, you're protecting tenants. And maybe in a very short period of time, that's true. But over a long period of time, what ends up happening is you disincentivize people to take risks, to build properties, to renovate properties, to bring things up to scale. Because ultimately, you know, I'm reading about people, uh, like you said, in Toronto that, you know, are paying $1,500 a month rent in, in a building that, you know, the rents are easily double that, but because of the rent controls, they're at a certain price point. Now, that's great to that one person in that one situation. But if you extrapolate that across an entire building, I mean, how do you expect the landlord to pay for maintenance, for deferred maintenance? How do you expect them to fix the roof? How do you expect them to shovel the driveway? Where, where do you think this money is going to come from? Right. And if you can't pass those costs and, and you know, the, the argument as well, you know, if there's no rent controls, people can charge whatever they want. Well, no, that's not true, because at the end of the day, you're only going to be able to charge what the market will bear. If there's no, so there, I'm in Florida and it's not like if the rent is 1500, I'm going to go out there and charge three grand because I'm not going to have any tenants. So, you know, there's no rent control, but there's the reason to build free markets. I mean, free market capitalism is the need, the ability to set your own price. And, you know, if the price is increased then it, it's, if there's enough people that there's the demand for it, then that's, that, that's how you do it. But yeah, you're right. I mean, in Ontario and, you know, I guess Alberta and Saskatchewan throughout Canada, there's 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 some more autonomy there. But again, those two provinces together are less than what five million people. And they're just really small markets. Yeah, for sure, hundred percent. So, let's go back to uh, you know your your background in equities and the deals that you're working on now. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you structure your deals and how you raise capital for them. Sure, sure. So. For for me, uh, my favorite, and again, this is a much bigger conversation because when you go cross border, you've got cross border considerations and things like this, and, and tax and and legal and securities, and you got to make sure you have the right lawyers and accountants review your documents. But for me, I I'm very partial to creating limited partnerships. I I love the LPGP model for for multiple reasons. One is LPs allow investors to benefit from the uh, you know, the flow through losses, the paper losses, the amortization, the depreciation. Uh, another, actually, another thing, see, now you got me going here. <laughs> Kadisha, another, another thing that you can do in the US that you can't do in Canada is accelerated depreciation on the assets. So what that means is in Canada, if you do certain renovations within, within a property, there's a very rigid schedule with it, with which you have to abide by to be able to write those improvements off. Whereas in the U.S., you have uh, literally accelerated depreciation where you can have a consultant come in and they'll tell you, okay, you can write this off over three years, five years, seven years, as opposed to putting everything on a 20-year you know, model. All of those benefits, uh, the, you know, the higher income relative to the purchase price, all of those things uh, for me are, are, are really huge. And I think, I think to answer your question directly, the way I typically like to structure deals is 
You always want to put a preferred return for the investors. So it depends on the building, but it's usually six, 7%. And then you typically do a split on the profit. And, you, you know, you, some people do 50, 50, some do 60, 40, 70, 30, et cetera, et cetera. It's really deal driven and how much work there's involved. But for me, I, I always look at from an investor's perspective. I mean, if you're getting those mid-teens, high-teens uh, returns, IRRs, those are, those are the, the, you know, you need to make sure there's enough meat on the bone for everybody because, you know, the, and I'm, I'm starting to see more and more of this now. I don't know, Jose, if you guys are seeing it, but I'm seeing people doing deals just because of the fees with very little upside left for the investors. And, and that's maybe, maybe that's a indication of a mature market in some areas, but, you know, you, you definitely want to make sure that you're, you're, you're structuring the deal in a way where the investor gets the tax benefits. There's cash flows. You want to make sure they get them first. And if there's a refinance or a sale, obviously they get their money back first and, you know, you distribute profits after. But, uh, you know, my favorite thing to do is like, for example, one of the last projects we acquired, if we're able to stabilize this thing, we paid under 4 million for it. And if we can get a uh, valuation, once it's stabilized closer to 10, 11 million, once we refinance, we should be able to get a full return of capital to investors and still own the asset. And, and that's that's typically my favorite way to do things. Yeah, for sure. Um, you covered quite a bit over there. And for the sake of our listeners, maybe you can expand a little bit on the the LPGP structure and what what those are meant for, especially like, you know, referring back to, you know, in the US, this is known as a multifamily syndication, which is not commonly used term in Canada. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, you're right. Uh, there, there's no such. I, I've been at this for a bit and I've never heard a Canadian tell me or call me a syndicator. Uh, I've, I've just never, I've never had it. I've, even lawyers and accountants, that word is very much a, a U.S. word. So yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess for the benefit of, of, of people that are, that are, that are tuning in, you know, limited partners are typically the capital contributors to a transaction. They're the ones who are uh, putting up the money and uh, into the transaction. They're not taking operating roles in the business. And Actually, a fun story for you guys. I don't know if you know the origin of the term limited partnership. Uh, I don't know if I've, I've shared that with you guys before. But so, 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 so this is fun. The, uh, the British are responsible and, and, and behind them, the Dutch, they're responsible for a lot of the financial, the mechanisms that we have today, whether it's the common law or uh, financial you know, instruments, things like this. So way back when, I think it was in the 1500s, when they would hire when they would have ships that would go and explore around the world, the monarchs, the uh, the merchants, the the uh, you know the, the wealthy individuals, they would fund these exploratory missions, but they would do it in a limited capacity where they're limited in liability. So they would fund the ship, like the ship, the limited partnership. So in other words, they would fund the boat to go and go look for gold or good look for spices or look for whatever materials on the other side of the world and if the sailor we'll think about officers and directors the ship's officer all these different terms right like so so there, there's an origin there of and again i'm broadly uh, speaking to this but you would have the people that are the ship's captain ship's officers the people that are actually working on the boats they essentially be the general partners they'd be the managers They'd be the person, they'd be the individuals that are responsible for the conduct of the boat, 
And essentially, if they died, or if any of the crew died, the people that put up the money to fund the expedition were limited in their liability to the amount of money they invested. So the families of the people that worked on boats couldn't then go after the merchants that funded the ships. So it was a limited partnership. Right, right. So, okay. so, so anyway, I, I, I'm, diver- I'm, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. My, my point is, so you have the limited partners, the people that put up the capital, and then you have the general partners, which are the individuals that run the business, uh, identify the opportunities, and, and you know, typically they co-invest as well. But those are the two distinct roles. So in, in Canada, uh, the LPGP model is primarily used for you wouldn't use an LPGP to buy a duplex because there's there's a level of uh, reporting, there's a level of accounting, that the stubs that your investors get in the LPs are different compared to from a corporation. Uh, there's no dividends. It's uh, you've got there's it, it's a different flow of funds. And, and and the one thing that's different between an LP and GP model versus a corporation, uh, broadly speaking, is that LPs don't. Pardon me, the LPGP model doesn't retain any, there's no, there's no such thing as a retained earning or loss or retained losses. Everything that occurs within that entity in that calendar year flows through to the limited partners. And that's, that, that's really important. So for example, if you have losses, whether they're real or whether they're just tax, you know, driven activities from repairs, those things flow through to people. And you know, more sophisticated investors, accredited investors typically appreciate that. I mean, they have their accountants involved as well. But, you know, in my experience, they're able to leverage those uh, those types of things for their own benefit as well. So obviously check with your accountant and your lawyer, but there, there's tremendous benefits to that. Whereas if you just do a corporation, typically the corporation is, you know, it, it, it retains everything uh, for a period of time. Yeah. So in a multifamily syndication, essentially you're getting the same benefits as you going out and buying a single family home by yourself, for example, right? You know, that's probably a good way to put it. Yeah. Because I mean, if you, so so you think about it, if, if the options are, I'm going to go out and get a mortgage and buy a rental property and then hire a property management company, one could argue that you're probably taking a little bit more risk as well, because you're also taking on the debt personally. Whereas if you're partnering with somebody on an apartment building, whether it's in Canada or the U.S., uh, by and large, limited partners typically don't guarantee the debt. Uh, the debt is typically guaranteed by the general partners and, you know, obviously by the building and the GP. Yeah. So uh, you still get the same level of benefit with obviously, uh, you know, reduced risk. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, real estate has become a bit of a a buzzword recently, right? Like people are finally seeing so much of the benefit. From your perspective, uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the economy, um, a little bit about inflation and and where real estate and these types of you know deals fit into all that for, for the end user. So you know what's really interesting? Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but I, I've, I actually grew up in Poland for the first couple of years before I came over to Canada. And in 1995, Poland had what was called the renumeration of the currency. So what happened was, if you had $10,000, or in Polish they were called złote, which is uh, golden, the goldens, you know, like the dollars kind of thing. If you had $10,000, when renumeration happened, they rolled back your 10000 to one. So if you had 100000 in the bank, you had 10 bucks. Uh, that, that, that was the remuneration. So they cut a bunch of the zeros back. And again, 
Poland isn't the only country that's had remuneration. You've had remuneration all throughout the world. Uh, you've heard of the hyperinflation in, uh, no doubt, uh, Germany, Argentina, other parts of the world. And, you know, unfortunately, what happens when you have loose monetary policy, you end up having a massive run up in the amount of zeros that accompany anything. I, I was I was literally just reading this morning. I don't know if you guys saw this, but, uh, you know, Frito-Lay, the company that produces Doritos and these, they so they, they cut off Loblaws. They, can you believe it? Loblaws represents one third. I was reading one third of Canada's uh, grocery budget. I think of That's the exactly average. right. Yeah, I read the same article as you read. Yeah, because of the the the, the discrepancy or the negotiation and price. Right, they, they they the negotiations broke down. Right, because what happened is, and again, I wasn't there, but I'm guessing what happened is uh, Frito Lay refused to absorb the price increases from Loblaws because. Frito-Lay probably said, look, these Doritos are going to cost us X dollars to produce in the future versus X dollars in the past. So we need to increase the price to cover the cost of the corn or the labor or whatever it is that goes into the Doritos. And Loblaws, essentially, from what I read, said no. So Frito-Lay said, okay, well, we're not going to sell you guys chips because we're going to lose money. And and that, that, that that's a symptom of inflation. It's a symptom of empty shelves. It's it It is... It, it's happening all around us. And look, even even if we take uh, the uh, posted inflation rates, the CPI index at face value, I mean, my God, it's been a long time since I've seen 6% plus as, as a posted rate. Because I mean, governments have always told you they, they're looking for one, two, three percent And now they're even posting US is almost seven. Canada, I think was uh, six plus, whatever it was. And you know, th- those are those are those are posted rates, and without even getting into how they calculate that, because that's a that's 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 another uh, kettle of fish. But even if you take it at face value and you say six percent, okay, so what that basically means is if you have a hundred grand in purchasing power, twelve months later you have ninety four thousand dollars in purchasing power. Twenty four months later you have eighty something thousand dollars in purchasing power. I mean, that's a real erosion. Of the 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 value of of of, of the of the store value of your cash. So, uh, my my point is when they remunerated the polar swatte, and when they do remunerations throughout the world, when you when you end up having the tail end of hyperinflation, what ends up happening is the people with the real assets, the means of productions, whether it's uh, whether you own a factory that produces toilet paper, or whether you're running a farm that you know you're you're producing food, whether you provide housing through the form of owning real estate. Those real assets, they will retain their intrinsic value regardless of how many zeros are in front of the one. And that, that's really what matters. So from, from, from a Canadian's perspective or from an American, from, from anyone's perspective, if, if you're trying to retain your purchasing power, some of the smartest things you can do, and certainly the people I talk to, is you've got to own real stuff. Uh, own real stuff. Own real estate. Don't just own any real estate because if you own a $5 million house, I mean, unless you're renting it, I don't know how you'd rent that out to cash flow, but, but if you're buying things that you can cash flow, at least cash flow neutral or cash flow positive, and you can, you can get a handle around the debt that you put, that's another thing is that you got to make sure that your debt is, is, is fairly secure so that you're not going to, you know, increase the, the cost of your debt. But if, but if you can retain those assets and, you know, uh, I mean, my gosh, I mean, you look at, uh, you look at any property you own today, could you build it for what you bought it for 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Of course not. You look at all those, uh, in Toronto, you look at those beautiful hotels downtown, the Fairmonts all over Canada. 
Those are billion dollar buildings today. Why? Well, because to build them, to replace them would be, how would you replace it? Castles in Europe, how would you build a castle today? You know, like it's, it's inflation, right? It's all these different components. And, and if you can own something that retains its value, regardless of how many zeros are behind it, you're, you're, uh, you're much, much better off. Yeah, no, that's, you brought up a few very good points. And, you know, inflation is essentially um, the, I would say the well-off or the rich are, are benefiting from it. And the middle class are the ones that are getting kind of crushed from this inflation because essentially it's a, it's a tax. It's a form of a tax. Um, you know, if you don't own any assets, then you're, you're at, a, at a loss. And it's a, dishonest, it's a dishonest tax because you're not actually going to the taxpayer and saying, hey, we need to raise your taxes against your wages. You're just not saying anything. You're increasing the money supply. Then there's more dollars chasing the same goods. So when you know grandma goes to the grocery store on her fixed pension and she's trying to buy groceries, it's not 100 bucks a week. Now it's 130 bucks a week. So th- those are, and, and to your point, like the, the, the people that get, most adversely impacted from inflation and a loose money supply are people that are typically on the lower uh, lower economic rungs of society. These are the people that if bread goes up from $3 to $5, that's a big deal. If pasta is not two bucks and it's six bucks, that's a big deal. If, if you can't buy ham anymore and you're now eating, you know, like it, th- those are the things that are, that have a, a big deal. And here's the other thing, as prices go up, People that are noticing this at the grocery store, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because you'll be standing there and you'll say, man, like, for example, I bought the, the Oral-B, uh, the spinny, the, the heads for my uh, toothbrush. I, I literally bought those yesterday. I'm like, 25, 30 bucks for three of these things? I'm like, these things used to be like 10 bucks. So what did I do? I bought four packs of this stuff. So there you go. So, so, so why? Well, because... I can, and I know I'm going to use it. So I'm overbuying, and I'm starting to create basically a pharmacy, you know, and I'm carrying stuff around. Like, because you buy, you don't just buy one thing anymore. You buy two or three, especially per, uh, non-perishables, toothpaste, the essentials. And, and you're starting to see a lot more people buy these things now. So it, it, it creates an increased demand, and it further drives up the thing that everyone's trying to avoid in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, Marcin, tell us uh, a little bit about, you know, what, wh- where do you see yourself? What, what do you see yourself building here? What, what are your goals for maybe the next three to five years? Are you looking to, um, you know, sort of build out your U.S. branch and, and acquire more multifamily? Um, is, is it syndication that you're going to be focusing on? You know, I, I think uh, my biggest priority is to figure out how to be a dad. <laughs> I just had a kid, so... Um, figuring out how to how to how to wipe front to back is probably my biggest priority. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, that's that is number one priority for sure. Uh, but on, on on the business side, yeah. Look for 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 us. I mean, I I, I think I really enjoy watching people win. Uh, I I'm I'm kind of at a point where I, I like to see people kind of get those wins and 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 get that success. I mean, yes. Obviously, uh, buying uh, buying a couple more apartment buildings a year is going to be fantastic. Building out a presence down here is great. Lifestyle is 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 fantastic. When you can, you know, if you're fortunate enough to spend time where you want, when you want, that that's really helpful as well. And um, 
Yeah, I mean, from a, from an educational standpoint, when, when COVID first started, it was funny. I was spending so much time at home that my wife, she says to me, she goes, okay, you got, you got to find something to do because I'm starting to micromanage things in the house and you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm in the house too much. Right. So she goes, you got to, you got to find something to do. So I'm, I'm like starting to question things like, you know, should we buy this vacuum cleaner versus this one? Like just, I'm, I'm, I'm just too involved. And, uh, uh, so, so, uh, I started doing the mentorship, uh, you know, the zoom thing became a thing. So, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, actually, Jose, that's how you and I met a couple of years ago, right? We, we met online, came to one of the masterminds and, uh, you know, for me at this point, just, just seeing people kind of get those wins, you know, get some properties behind them. I, I honestly think the, one of the best things people can do is buy good stable cash flowing properties whether you're buying them directly whether you're part of a syndication whether you're just just getting getting your cash into an asset that isn't going to just erode to inflation i think is really important and that gets me excited you know let's let's talk a little bit about your special which is capital raising and and i know personally you've helped so many people uh get that confidence uh, when they're capital raising and you have uh, developed a lot of great programs with the uh, in this space, and you know. So there's the five day challenge, uh, capital raising challenge that you have, which was amazing. I was actually part of that, and um, you've got a, an amazing community, a, a Facebook group, um, which yeah, is- that's, that's been fun. Uh, we we started that in October. We had like thirty people, and now we're twenty two hundred in like three months or whatever. So it's. Uh, it's you know what it is people don't know there there's a lot of people that are out there there there's a lot of great teachers out there that are showing people how to do deals how to analyze deals how to how to how to look at markets but it it just blew me away how few people were willing to share how to actually structure deals and you know broadly speaking how to raise capital so for me that was just a natural fit that's again you need your own lawyers and your own accountants don't just go out and raise money without the right advice but but around getting the legal structure there's there's so much uh i i enjoy when people figure out how to talk to people about getting their deals done yeah no and martin i think that's that's really great because jose and i i mean we've been investing for for a long time, over 10 years. And I think that we always thought we were really good investors and we were good investors, but raising capital was always scary for us because, you know, we knew how to analyze deals. We knew how to get deals under contract. We knew how to do renovations, but it's, it's kind of scary for a lot of investors to think about raising even hundreds of thousands of dollars, forget millions of dollars. Right. So I think that that's, really a unique space that you're in and, and a great set of expertise because I think a lot of investors, uh, you know, they can broaden their horizons by understanding that there is lots of, there's lots of money out there, right? Oh, there, there are literally billions of dollars out there. Uh, there's, there, there's, there's so much money out there that the, the, the issue isn't a lack of money. It, it's a, first of all, it starts with a mindset because most people, a lot of people have personally limiting beliefs around being able, being worthy, being smart enough, being good enough to, to raise money, to, to have capacity and, and, and ultimately give themselves some, some credit for what they have done. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've met that manage eight-figure portfolios of their own, literally eight-figure portfolios, and they are, you know, 
terrified of talking to investors, like just absolutely terrified. And, and they feel like they have imposter syndrome, like they can't raise money. Like, why would anyone invest with me? How come, you know, what if I screw up all these things? And it's, look, I mean, the mindset piece is, 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 is a very big part of it. And then beyond that, the tools, the, the way to structure a deal, the way to converse with people, uh, how to, how to be able to demonstrate an idea in 30 seconds or less to figure out if someone's interested, if they're qualified, if they're capable, knowing how things work. I mean, it, it's one thing to know how to buy an apartment building. And you guys are very good at obviously buying deals, sourcing your financing, doing your renovations. But until somebody thinks about the equity piece or the subordinated debt piece to that transaction, and you're able to consider that lockstep with the actual transaction itself that is that is a different business and and it's the reason why you have companies like blackstone kkr apollo fortress uh, capital management out of new york you have these billion dollar behemoths that are in the money business they they invest in real estate they invest in infrastructure they invest in operating companies and you know i say this a hundred times the money is in the money you know people complain about how much money these entities and these companies make, but that's, in my opinion, largely because there's a skill set there that they don't appreciate or even acknowledge. And, and raising money is its own business. It is a very, very big business. For sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the big things that we've learned, and maybe you can touch on this, is that, you know, it's not about asking for money. It's about creating win-win situations, right? So when you're raising this money, um, you know, you have to sort of get that concept that you're asking for a favor out of your mind because it's not a favor. No, this isn't charity. Of course not. <laughs> but I, I think knew. a lot of investors when there's like, we've had so many conversations and it's like, you know, I feel, I feel weird talking about it with my brother. I feel weird asking my dad or my friend about, you know, Hey, would you be willing to invest, you know, hundred K with me? It's, it's not, you know, and, and, and that, I think that's a huge shift that has to happen. Yeah. I mean, we personally went through we, that. We, we were speaking from experience because yeah. we've been through that. Well, and I think so many people have this mindset where they think they're dealing with like some Gordon Gecko, smooth talking guy in a three piece suit that you need to be that person to raise money. That's not how it works. I mean, I, at least at a, at a day to day level, that's not how it works. I mean, it could be as simple as, you know, as you're talking to people about things you're working on, because you will have people ask you, hey, how's that conversion going? How's this deal happening or whatever it is? You can say, oh, it's great. We did this. We rented out three of the units. We're still working with the city on a permit for this, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can literally say, "Hey, I'm looking at something else. Uh, if I come across something, do you want to do you want me to keep you in mind?" It's as simple as that. It, it doesn't have to be. Now, obviously, there's a lot more conversations. There's documents. There's paperwork. But if you could just get over the barrier of that, it's not charity, and you're not asking for a favor. You can literally say, "Hey, I'm working on these deals. I'm going here." I'm probably going to be short some cash. If I come across something, you know, do you want me to keep you in mind? Like it's, it's, it's a really easy, simple question to ask. And people are going to say yes or no. It, and, and again, the people that say yes, it doesn't mean they're going to write you a check. But again, you create that opening to have that dialogue. And, and that's really what it is. Have an open, transparent dialogue. And it's, this isn't used car sales. I mean, Jose, you, you and I have known each other for a bit now. Anything I talk about is all, all, 
consultive in nature. It, it's more about just figuring out what people's priorities are. And again, very few people are going to write you a check in three days or three months for that matter. Some people might take three years. Uh, some people might already be looking that day as you you know have an opportunity. But as long as you have that long-term approach, you know, I, I always talk about you know if you're here for a long time, not just a good time, people will see that. And that's important. You know, I wanted to ask you, is there a quote or saying that you kind of live by and that has helped you in, in business <laughs> yeah. or in life? <laughs> uh, well, there's there's a book that I reread at least annually. It's called The Obstacle is the Way. And it's by a guy named Ryan Holiday. And the subtitle is, so the book is The Obstacle is the Way. The subtitle is What is in the Way Becomes the Way. And Ryan Holiday is, uh, he's written a few really good books. That one is my absolute favorite. The book is rooted in stoicism. And essentially the, the, the premise of it is nothing happens to you. Everything happens for you. And if you can wrap your head around that concept and truly embody that, you will, you'll, you'll be a much happier, calmer person. And, and that's another thing. Nobody wants to invest with somebody who is scattered and jittery. And all over the place. So, you know, finding that self confidence within yourself, knowing that regardless of, because look, raising money is not a pretty game. You're going to have some mean people out there. <laughs> they're they're going to say things. They're going to do things. They're going to take runs at you. There's, you know, it, if you're in business long enough, eventually you're going to come across lawyers. You're going to come across lawsuits. You're going to come across all kinds of things because it's business. And it, it happens to anybody and everybody. So by, by knowing that whatever comes at you, that it never happens to you, it happens for you. That, that's probably my favorite thing in life. Yeah. And I, I mean, yeah, Marcin, you're right. Everything all, always comes back to mindset. And, you know, you're such a positive guy. And I think that, you know, it resonates when you speak. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that that that's why you're successful as well. You're, you are definitely a, a calm, you know, really positive guy. So, uh, yeah, yeah we, like, we really. I'm never going to let somebody get under my skin. Like, it just doesn't happen. It, 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 it's not, I will never give someone the satisfaction of getting under my skin. It, yeah. It's just, it, it, it's not going to happen. And when people realize that they can come at you from whatever angle, whether again, whether it's your tenant, whether it's a lender, whether it's an investor, whether it's a whoever it is, as long as people know that you're you're just good, like they they can't touch you. That that creates this omni it creates this uh, this environment where you know you attract people, you find great partners, you you uh, create you just create an environment for other people to be comfortable, to be around you, to be with you, and that. And, and that ties into leadership. It ties into being, you know, just you got to remember, like if, if your if your audience can wrap their head around anything, like someone is literally writing you a check for five, six, seven figures, and they're not leaving the meeting with a house they can walk into. They're not leaving with a car. They're not leaving with a boat. They're leaving with a piece of paper that says that they own shares or units in a building halfway around the country. Like just wrap your head around that concept for a second. So ultimately, who are they writing the check to? It's you. And, and if you're not going to stand in front of what you're doing, then why should anybody else? 
Well, thanks again, Marcin. We uh, really enjoyed the conversation today. I will include it in the show notes, but if people want to learn more about your uh, capital raising challenge, uh, your group, your mentorship, or just generally get in touch and see what's going on with you, can you tell us how they would do that? Sure. Uh, thank you. So the, the best way to kind of just stay in touch with me or, or see what events we have or uh, activities that we're, we're working on is my website, marsandrose.com. And, you know, it's uh, spelt. I, hopefully you can put that in the show notes. I will definitely put in the show notes. But yeah, I know, look, the, the five-day challenge is great for people that are trying to figure out how to raise capital. Uh, we have uh, an M1 inner circle where we do weekly training. Uh, we also have opportunities uh, that we work on our own apartment buildings with. So uh, it's, it, you know, the, the people that come to us are people that are typically already in the game and have hit that wall because they, they've, you know, they bought their two properties or their 20 properties or maybe five, you know, 50 properties and they're, they're at an impasse. And, and that's where, you know, what we do really helps them well. Yeah, for sure. I highly recommend uh, you guys check out uh, Marcin and uh, his programs. So Marcin, I really thank you. Once again, for being on our show, it's uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Yeah, no, I really appreciate being here, guys. I, I love the podcast. I love the format that you guys have done and uh, look forward to listening to you guys for years to come. Awesome. Thanks, Marcin. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Savvy Real Estate Investor Show make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If you liked this episode, please write a review and share it with us. We are getting the show up and running right now, so every message, every review, and every note counts. This show exists to showcase how investors at any level can start using and leverage real estate to become savvy wealth builders. If you want to learn more about how we can potentially help you create more passive income and build your wealth faster, go to www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. Once again, it's www.savvyrealestateinvestor.com. All right, that's a wrap. We can't wait to hang out with you on the next episode.